Becky and I are thrilled to be able to be with you, and it is a joy to spend this morning here at Church of the Valley, and uh, great to find out a little bit more about what God's doing here, and to know your heart for the very things that I think really beat with the heart of God, which is the issues of making of disciples and multiplying of the work of God in various ways, and so we're, I'm, we're thrilled to be able to be a part of this, and the opportunity to come and share with you today. Um, as, as Mike mentioned, we, Becky and I jump on a plane later today to be down in Phoenix for some time with, with leaders from our mission from around the world, and uh, it's, it's fun to hear some of what God's up to. And we've, uh, in March of this year, actually will be, will mark 25 years that we've lived in San Jose, and a number of years ago, uh, we had the opportunity, could have moved someplace else, and, and there, there are a couple of really important things that kept us here. Our children and grandchildren live here. That's pretty significant, yeah? And the other is a significant thing we believe in our hearts. It's significant that we keep, in a sense, our fingers in the dirt here in San Jose of what God could do in Santa Clara, San Jose, and Silicon Valley in the place that is the least churched metropolitan community in America. And believe that God wants to do something significant here. And uh, we want to be a part of that as he does it. So can I pray for us? And let's just ask God to speak to our hearts today. Father, uh, I would ask now, Holy Lord and Father, we pray that you by your Spirit, whom you've given to us to be our teacher, who points us to the Lord Jesus, who is our Savior and coming King, what we need today is to hear from you. We, we don't need just words from me. We need to hear from your word, through your spirit, to our hearts. And would you do that in a way that would hold Jesus high and would focus our hearts on your heart? And we ask this in Jesus' name. decades ago, there were a couple of young youth leaders. They'd been leading a, an extremely successful youth ministry in a large metropolitan area here in the United States, and they decided they wanted to plant a church. They said, we want to plant a church that's different. We want to plant a church that's going to reach people that aren't going to church, and so they decided they would go door to door and ask these questions. The questions were simple. Do you go to church? If so, where? And if not, why not? Now, the answers they got were pretty typical for what they would have received three, you know, several decades ago. They got answers from those who didn't go to church, like, church, I mean, it's full of hypocrites. They say one thing and do something else. I think the, all the church wants is my money. Those are the kinds of comments they heard. They went ahead and planted a church that's reached a lot of people. A few years ago, I met a young church planner. His heart was to plant a church, to start a new church in the Santa Cruz Mountains, sort of right up in Boulder Creek, Felton, Scotts Valley, kind of up in that area. He wanted to plant a church there. And so he thought, you know, if it worked back then, maybe it'll work now where I could go door to door and ask those same questions. So he did. He went door to door in the area and he knocked on the door. And, and here's the answers he got. First of all, he found out that very few of anybody up there went to church anywhere. And what he found next is this. When he asked, why not? Here's the typical response. Uh, church? Why would I do that? And it had moved from a, 
oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites, to honestly a sense of irrelevance. Why would I even do that? And you look around our culture today, and we see people that tend to look at the church and would say either it's irrelevant or they're ticked off at some of the things that they hear and see coming out of, quote-unquote, the church. And yet those of us whose lives have been touched deeply by the good news of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've seen God at work changing our lives, we long for others to experience that. And we long to see God do something significant. We'd say, wow, the needs are so great. I have a friend who says, you know, the truth is life is too short and eternity is too long to miss sharing Jesus with others. And we have that sense we long for God to do something. But what would that look like? And how could he do it? Take your Bibles, would you, and turn with me, if you're going to use the Bible in the, in the songbook rack in front of you, it's on page 1050. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts. And I'm going to give you a little context in the beginning, before we get to Acts chapter 2, just to let you know what this book is about. The book of Acts really is volume 2 of a two-part series written by a, a medical doctor named Luke. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke, which gives us the life of Jesus. The second volume is the book of Acts, or as it sometimes is called the Acts of the Apostles, or maybe more realistically, it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because we see God's Spirit at work in profound ways. And we find in Acts chapter 1, found on page 1055, these words, Acts 1.1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. And after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then the next verse says, they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I love his response. If I could paraphrase the next verse. Jesus' response is, it's none of your business. Right? It's up to the Father when this is going to happen. But look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said that, something happened they'd, never, they'd not seen before. Because you need to remember, these folks had been with Jesus for a long time. They watched him heal the sick, raise the dead, multiply food, walk on water. He appeared to them over a period of, of, of days. He'd appeared, he disappeared, he taught them. Something happened next they'd never seen before. As he's speaking, he begins to levitate up into the air, and he disappears into the clouds. Now, friends, they were doing what you and I would be doing if we were there. They were staring up into the sky, going, I wonder if he's coming back. How long is he going to be up there? Where did he go? And two angels appear beside them, and the angel said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing staring up into the skies? Don't you know this same Jesus who was taken from you will come again just as you've seen him go? In a sense saying, now go and do what he told you to do. Do you remember what he told them to do? Stay in Jerusalem and wait. 
Acts chapter 2 brings us to that. And in between, in fact, it's interesting, the last part of Acts chapter 1, here's what I find. When you get leaders together in a room and they don't have anything to do, they try to solve a problem. So you get the disciples, they're in this room, they're waiting for whatever God was going to do next, and they, knew, they said, hey, we're down one. Judas is gone, we need to figure out a leader. So the rest of chapter 1 is God's working in their hearts to choose the person who would replace Judas. Well, they're still in that upper room in Acts chapter 2. Let's read together. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And some, however, made fun of them and said, ah, they've had too much wine. Now let me give you a little sense of what we're seeing happen here. Because if we go back into the Old Testament scriptures, and we realize one of the key characters in the Old Testament is the character of Abraham or Abram, as his name was at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abram. He says, Abram, through you, all the nations, all the people groups of the world will be blessed through you. Now, what we often forget is what happened just preceding that. If you read Genesis chapter 11, something interesting happened. They developed some new building technology that allowed them to build taller buildings. And so at that time, all the people all spoke the same language, and they had a common culture. And so they gathered together, and they said, you know, with this new building technology, we could build a building, if we work together, that could reach to heaven. And, and in a sense saying, and we can become like God. And the Lord looked down at them, if you look at Genesis 11, he says, I don't think so. And so it says, he confused their languages. And you know, friends, what he did? God created the nations of the world. He created the people groups. And it was out of a sense in a time of disobedience that God said, you're being disobedient to me. You want to you be God yourself. He creates the nations, and the very next thing he does in, in, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 12 is he tells Abram, by the way, all those nations I just created, they're all going to be blessed through you. And that was the promise of the coming Messiah, and we get to Matthew chapter 28, the end of Jesus' life, and he tells his disciples, go and make disciples of who? Of all nations. So in Acts chapter 2, what happens is, on this day when the church is born and the Spirit of God comes upon these disciples, the very message of the good news of the life 
the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and yes, soon return of Jesus, that message of the good news of the gospel is being proclaimed to people in their mother tongues. And they're, they're, they're absolutely amazed. How do these Galileans know our language? Some are amazed and some make fun of them. And I think what it is, is we see God's huge heart for the peoples of the world. He cares enough to give them the message in their own language. Well, then we read, if you come back to the text, if you read down in chapter 16 of chapter 2, Peter does something I could see Tim Riley doing, to be honest with you. And that is, there's this moment of question. There's this moment of people are going, what's happening here? And are they drunk? Are they crazy? What is God doing? And there's this moment of wondering. And so Peter stood up and he started talking. He preached a sermon. It's an incredible sermon. Look at how it starts. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, it is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes this extensive quotation from Joel's prophecy. And verse 22, if you look at that and just scan verses 22 and following, you'll see he points them clearly to Jesus, like the songs we were singing just a few moments ago. He talks about miracles and wonders and signs. He talks about the things God did even in Jesus' death and his resurrection. And then he quotes scripture again. You see, starting in verse 25, he quotes from Psalm 16. David said this about him, and there's this wonderful Psalm Old Testament quote about Jesus. And he comes back and he starts preaching again, down in verse 29. Finally, after quoting one more Psalm, we get to verse 36 of chapter 2. And here is the end of his sermon. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And the people, it says they're cut to their heart and they say, what should we do? What do we do with this? And Peter replied in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and for all whom the Lord will call. Look at the end of verse 43. 3,000 people responded. Incredible. I see something in the life of Peter that I want to draw your attention to. Peter's, I love Peter as a character in the scriptures. You go through his time in the gospels. Peter's the one who often opened his mouth and stuck his foot in it. He's often the one that said things that Jesus would go, Peter, Peter. I mean, I, I wish I had still photos of Jesus' face when Peter would do that. It's kind of like, again? You're doing this again? And, and then you get to the time just on the night before that Jesus was betrayed, before he was crucified. Peter's the one who said, you know what, Lord? Even if everyone else runs away from you, I'll stay with you said, really? So the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times, which he did. And in brokenness, Peter went out and wept. 
who is it on this day of what we call the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the birthday of the church, who's the one who preaches the sermon? Who's the one who calls people to repentance? Who's the one that 3,000 come to know Jesus? It's Peter. And I think we see an extremely important truth that we want to hang on to that we find in this scripture. And I'm going to put four simple letters and an arrow to express what I'm talking about. Okay? And it's simply this. I call it BT to MT. And this is what it means. As we are being transformed, God begins to multiply transformation. And you know what we tend to look at, friends, to be honest with you, I tra- Becky and I travel all around the U.S., we travel different places around the world, and here's what I find. People that are frustrated saying, how come we're not seeing God do more? And we tend to look at what I call the outputs. This is what we want to see God do. We forget that the output happens because of an input that he does in us. Look at Peter. His life was changed by an encounter with the risen Christ and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. His life was being transformed by the truth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through that, God used him to begin to multiply transformation. 3,000 people came to faith. As we're being transformed in that disciple-making process, God can then multiply transformation around us. Come back to the text again. Because the passage Ruth read for us a few moments ago is how the chapter ends. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all, believe, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Have you ever thought to yourself, what would it be like if there was a huge convention or conference and there were people from literally all over the then known world and they were there and God did something pretty significant and a bunch of them came to faith in Christ and they wanted to stay and be discipled and invested in? How would you take care of them? That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 new believers. They're from all over the Roman world. What did they do? They gathered together. They devoted themselves to the scripture's teaching, fellowship, to prayer, and they even sold things to take care of one another. There's something that I see in Acts chapter 2 that is this pattern. It's a pattern I think that's worth paying attention to. It's a pattern that leads toward the kind of transformation we want to see happen. And it's a simple thing. I mean, the, the older I get, the more I realize that we probably tend to make things way too complicated. And what we see are really three things that God uses here. It first is his spirit. The second is his word. And the third are his people. 
If you look at Acts chapter 2, what do you see? It starts, the Spirit of God comes upon these leaders, empowering them. They begin to proclaim the message in languages they never knew. Peter preaches a sermon in the power of the Holy Spirit, and what does he do? He constantly calls people back to the Scriptures. He quotes Joel. He quotes the Psalms. He quotes the Psalms again. He's even going back, and he's talking about Old Testament imagery. It's filled with the Word of God. And then what do we see in the end of the chapter? It's the people of God together, breaking bread in their homes, sharing things with one another focused on the apostles' teaching and prayer and the fellowship. They were together. And what I see and we see in these chapters we're going to look at is as God begins to, the Lord begins to work to bring transformation into our lives so He can then multiply it in the lives of others. He does it through the work of His Spirit, teaching the truth of His Word in the context of redemptive relationships of God's people. And you know what I love about that? It doesn't take a huge budget. It doesn't take a huge building. It doesn't take technology. Anywhere I've gone in the world where I have found followers of Jesus that have a copy of the Bible, you know what we have? I've seen it in mud huts in Africa. I've seen it in huge churches in Asia. I've seen it in post-Christian Europe. When you have the Spirit of God teaching the Word of God in the context of relationships of the people of God, God does things and people's lives change. That's just what it is. And we tend to be thinking, wow, if we don't have just all the latest stuff and all the newest things, it won't happen. I found sometimes all the latest things get in the way of the Spirit, the Word, and the people. And that's how God changes things. Well, the story's not done. Come back into Acts chapter 3 with me, because Peter and John have an encounter with a man. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. And one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, and John looked straight at him, and the guy had their attention, and he thought he was going to give them something. Can I paraphrase what Peter said? He said what every pastor, not every, most pastors would say when somebody shows up and said, I need money. He said, silver or gold, have I none? I don't have any money. What I do have, I'll give to you. And he reaches down and he takes the man by the hand and he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And the text goes on to say, he jumped to his feet. This is verse 8. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Now, now please understand, my my goal in this is not to say that you need to go out and, and begin some healing ministry personally. I believe God heals completely. That's not the point of what I'm trying to make. What I'm trying to make is this. Peter did something Jesus had done. And they saw Jesus did that. And he pointed everyone back to Jesus. And this man, he's healed. And can you imagine him jumping and dancing? This guy hadn't walked. He's jumping and dancing and singing and making a huge ruckus. 
and he walks into the temple courts with Peter and John. He's clinging to them. And what does Peter do again? He preaches another sermon. If you look at chapter 3, he speaks to the crowd, starting in verse 11. And I'm not going to read it all to you. You can read it later today. But it's a phenomenal sermon again as he, as he shares with them what God was doing. But the religious leaders weren't happy. And in chapter 4, starting in verse 1, this is what we read. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Isn't that incredible? As Peter and John's lives were being transformed, God began to multiply transformation through the Spirit, His Word, and His people. So the next day they called them in and they interrogate them. What are you doing? What are you speaking about? And look at verse 8 chapter 4, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This man stands before you today. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone for salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He keeps pointing them to Jesus. In fact, if I could just take and write across all of this, just the name Jesus. It's focused on him. Well, the chapter goes on, and, and after they threatened them a little bit more, the, the, the religious leaders are trying to figure out what to do because they say, if, we, if we're too hard on these guys, the crowds will get after us because the crowds have seen the miracle. So they call them in, and they chastise them a little bit, and, and basically Peter and John said, you know, you, you judge for yourselves whether we should obey you or obey God. We can't help but speak what we've seen. So they threatened them more, and they sent them out. And when they got back to the disciples together, they were all excited. They prayed. They were, they were thrilled that God was opening opportunities for them to share. And if you come with me to chapter 4, verse 31, to verse 31, here it comes back to the focal point again. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, and all the believers were one in heart and mind. What do you see in chapter 4? The Spirit of God and the Word of God and the people of God. It's what you have here at Church of the Valley. The people of God. And among you, God is at work through the teaching and the empowerment of his spirit through when his word is looked at and taught and discussed and prayed over and lived out in obedience. And we do that in the context of those redemptive relationships within the family of God. What we see is our lives are changed and he starts touching and changing the lives of other people as he's working in us. That's how, that's how God does it. 
2007, Becky and I were in a conference center up the hill from Nairobi, Kenya, a place called Brackenhurst. We were there with missionary staff that I was leading on the continent of Africa, and we, it was a training time and an encouragement time for our, for our missionaries across Africa. And, and also, we brought six African national leaders from five countries, from Rwanda, from, uh, from Congo, from Liberia, from, from um, Sudan, and as well as, as from Uganda, and they were there with us. And we began talking about God's heart to reach the unreached. And we began talking about the significance of being transformed so God could multiply transformation, seeing what God might do. And at the end of the night, we prayed over these six national leaders. And then we all went to bed, and they stayed up all night. They couldn't sleep. These guys prayed, and they sang, and they worshiped, and they cried out to God. And they said, God's asking us to do something, and we have nothing to do it with, but he's asking us to do something to reach our continent. So the next morning they said, would you help us? We believe God's calling us to reach Africa with the good news of the gospel. We believe he's calling us to plant churches among unreached people. Could you help us? That's one of those nanosecond decisions where you go, yes, we can help you. And over the course of the next 10 years, as we invested in the lives of these leaders, at the end of 10 years, we saw 20,000 leaders trained and 5,000 churches planted, and ministry not in five countries, but in 20 countries, and it continues to multiply. And not one of those churches was planted by an American. They're all planted by Africans. The training was done by Africans. And people would go, how could they do that? They don't have any money. They have very, little, they have very limited resources. How could they do it? They did it because their lives are being changed and they said, we believe God wants us to do it. And they didn't focus on fancy stuff. They focused on the spirit, the word, and the people of God. And they said, Lord, we believe you have a heart for people that need to know you and we're gonna step into that and we watch God do amazing things. So how do we know? How do we know when we're seeing this sense of God at work? Actually, where we're being transformed so God could multiply transformation in other people's lives. How are we beginning to see that happen? I, I want you to come back with me to the text in Acts chapter 4. Would you look with me at verse 13? I'll give you a little bit of sense of who's, who's speaking here. In Acts 13, the people they're referring, or Acts chapter 4, verse 13, I'm sorry, Acts 4, 13, the people they're referring to are the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. These are the same people that sentenced Jesus to death. These are the same people that threatened Peter and John. These are the same people that if they could have, they'd have killed Peter and John. They hated them. They hated them. They hated the message. They hated everything they stood for. Verse 13, and when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And take, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Fascinating words. They saw the boldness, the boldness of these men, this idea they were frank, 
They were outspoken. They were blunt. They were fearless. They, they saw that they were unschooled. It's the idea literally uh, of meaning illiterate. Th these are bold, illiterate men. And it even goes one more step because it, it, it also says that they were, they were ordinary or they were common. And, and if you dig down into, into the original language in the Greek text there, you'll find that the root word for that root word ordinary is the word we get our English word idiot from. So in a sense, they said, you guys are bold, illiterate idiots. And yet we can't deny what's going on. And what did they attribute it to? That they'd been with Jesus. They saw Christ in them. They saw the character of Jesus lived out. And so I've asked myself the question, how would we know if this kind of disciple-making transformation is going on here in Silicon Valley? How would we know that? How would we know that God's at work through His Spirit, His Word, and His people to begin to truly bring some of that transformational change? I think maybe we'll know it as the very people who wished we weren't here take note that there's something different about I mean, folks that would go, I don't know, this whole church deal, I don't even know why they're here. But these people, there's something amazing about them. There's an old English word. I, I love the word. We hardly use it anymore. It's an old English word called winsome. Winsome people make you want to be with them. A winsome person says, You're, I'm drawn to you because there's something about that. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if the very people around us who really would say, I don't want to have anything to do with the church, are the ones that go, but there's something different about them. They're caring for the broken. They're loving one another. They're standing together. There's a sense of relational connectedness. There's a sense of depth of love and compassion we don't see elsewhere. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, Paul said. So wouldn't it be amazing if we began to see the Spirit of God, the Word of God, in these amazing relationships with the people of God lead to us being transformed so God could begin to do something so the world around us would say, I don't understand these folks. They look like Jesus. They live his heart. Something unique about them. And what could God do at Church of the Valley? See that kind of thing take root in Santa Clara and around this community.